people know if this would make sense to you, if you'd be surprised to hear this, but I'm not the most confident person in the world. Uh, I, some of you might be surprised by that. I don't know. You, you don't always know what people's perception of you are. Uh, I know some of you are thinking, well, you're standing up there and talking, so you've got to have like, at least some, some level of confidence. Um, uh, maybe, maybe a little bit, uh, but not necessarily. Like, I can't eat anything on Sunday morning because so, my stomach uh, doesn't, doesn't like that, so I don't know what that says. But one of the things I've learned is I've become a little bit more confident about some of the things that I know and that I believe as I've gotten older. The other thing I've gotten confident about are the things that I, I don't know <laughs> and don't have a clue about, and I've gotten uh, a little bit more honest about that, I think, as, as I've gotten older, and that's been good. But one of the things that I have... Uh, come to learn and understand about confidence is the thing, the two things I think that impact our confidence the most are ignorance. Um, and when I say that, like, I'm not trying to be rude by saying, you know, oh, you're ignorant. You're no, we, sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. I mean, that's, that's what that means. Unless somebody says you're ignorant, you know, then we can take that a little bit differently. So when you don't know what you don't know, that, that impacts our confidence, the way that we approach life and, and go about and doing things. Um, and the other thing I would say is distraction. Um, so ignorance and, and distraction. Distraction is the thing, like all the other thoughts that kind of are pervasive or are invasive, you know, that come in that maybe kind of uh, in, in the back of our mind are saying, you know, oh, I don't, I don't know that you can really accomplish because remember the last time you did this thing and, and, and maybe you see where, where I'm talking about that. And it's really easy in the type of world that we live in. It's a world that's, you know, not perfect. I don't know if you've noticed that yet or not in your life. Um, but that it can be really easy because of the things that we don't know and the things that we get distracted by to not live a very confident life. And yet, as we look at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation this morning, we're going to find that there is a consistent theme that Jesus communicates to seven different churches that should exude a lot more confidence than maybe we tend to naturally live out in our lives. Okay? So we're going to be taking a big overview in chapters, cha- chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation this morning. And Revelation 2 and 3 are messages or like many letters within the letter of Revelation that are specifically directed to seven different churches. Uh, these are real churches in a real place. And so I'll just give you a map of what it looks like. Uh, so if you were to look at modern day Turkey, um, then it was Asia Minor, uh, you would find these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, or Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, So these are places that you can go visit. Um, These are places that have archaeological digs. They have sites that kind of confirm and show, hey, these are the things that were going on in the day and age of the Roman Empire. Uh, Here are the things that uh, the Bible even talks about, and they're represented there. Uh, You can go and see those things today. And this letter, these uh, like seven messages are not seven separate letters, but these are all c- included within the larger letter of Revelation. So every, every one of these churches kind of gets to see the message Jesus has for each, each one of them. Um, now, if that were to happen today, I cannot imagine how long that letter would be. We have so many different churches, so many different denominations, so many different individual congregations. I can't imagine. But one of the things just to kind of remember contextually is that these are the days of the early church, and there was a lot more unity than there is now, than than what we we experience. 
And so each of these messages from Jesus, um, everybody else gets, gets to see. And last week we talked about how there are three different pictures of Jesus that are prevalent in the letter of Revelation. High priest, uh, sacrificial lamb, conquering king. And it's in the role of the high priest, you'll see these descriptions that are referred to from chapter 1 in 2 and 3, each, in each of the messages to the seven churches. They refer to Jesus who's coming and saying, hey, this is what it looks like to worship and to have our focus fully devoted to God. Each of the message of the churches basically has three different elements. Part one is Jesus introducing himself. Hey, and it ties to that description in chapter one. Uh, part two is some sort of um, encouragement or uh, really uh, maybe uh, could be uh, a condemnation, you know, for, for some of them. But Jesus says, hey, this is who you are as, as a group, and here are the things that you need to talk, uh, think about. And the last part is an encouragement to repentance. Okay? And there's a specific uh, way in which Jesus uh, does that. But before we dive into the text, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes um, or sandals, as it were, of these seven churches. So I just want you to imagine today that if I had gotten up and said, hey, um, I received a message from Jesus specifically to the church. Now, um, you're not going to hear me say, I don't, I don't think anybody's ever heard me say, God told me to tell you this today, you know, because I, I think you've got to be real careful about those kinds of things. Um, but just imagine, like, put, put yourself in that, in that frame of mind. What, what would it say? What, what would Jesus have to say about our church? Because I think it's important for us to kind of contextually get in the frame of mind to, to understand the, the impact that what we're about to read had on these congregations. What would Jesus have to say about velocity? I mean, I know, I know some of the things I would love to hear him say. You guys, are, you guys are amazing. Like, you just keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're good. And that rap guy, he's, he's something special. Like, you guys got a great staff and leadership. Volunteers are amazing. You know, you, you guys just keep, keep it going. Um, I don't understand why anybody's laughing, because aren't we assuming that's exactly what would be said? <laughs> Maybe not. I think there's some things that Jesus would be very encouraging uh, to us about as a church. Um, I think he would say, hey, you guys want to help people find Jesus and love God, stay on mission. I mean, this is, this is the greatest commandment and the great commission, right, that we find in, in text. Like, that's not original or unique to, to us. But I think Jesus would say, yes, keep it up, like, keep going. Um, I also think he would have some conversations with us about how easy it is to be caught up in the culture around us. And maybe sometimes we're distracted, or sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and we don't live as confidently as maybe we could, or we're not as engaged fully as we could be, whether it's in the congregation as part of the church, or maybe in our relationships with others as we share Jesus. I mean, I think that's pretty reasonable to assume. But one of the reasons why these personalized messages to each of these churches are so powerful is that they represent principles or issues or things that churches have dealt with throughout the centuries. And so while these are personalized messages, they also carry something incredibly weighty for us. And as we move through a, a big overview, because we don't have time to go through each and every single one of these churches, uh, maybe we'll do that some, sometime later in a, in a sermon series. But as we look at an overview of this, we're going to find some pretty powerful themes that still impact the church, uh, the church today. So let's jump in in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and look at the church in Ephesus. And here's what we find. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words, by the way, angel, I'll go ahead and say this now, um, angel just, uh, it means messenger. And so when we think of this, the symbolic 
uh, language and imagery and, and language that John uses in, in the text. Um, I, you could think of this as like, well, every church that must have a guardian angel that then will somehow pass this message on to the church. Uh, but if we think of it in terms of messenger, and we, we know that, uh, for example, Timothy was the evangelist at the church in Ephesus, um, here's the message to be shared from the messenger of the church to the church. Uh, so to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, again, here's this description that calls back to chapter 1. We know this is talking about Jesus, and we know what the, the stars and the lampstands represent. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Man, we could just stop there. It's like, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, Church at Ephesus is like, all right, Timothy, yeah, I like this message. Uh, this is good. And then we get to verse 4. And again, this is Jesus uh, speaking through, through John uh, to share this message with the church. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, I, just, just a little bit in, in the way of context, and I referred to this uh, last week. Ephesus is uh, kind of the center of the gateway, and I, I've got a picture here, Mike, that we can go ahead and, and throw up now. Um, it should be, yes, it should be that one. Um, and we can just go ahead and leave, uh, leave that up. Ephesus was kind of the Roman Empire gateway into Asia Minor. They, they had the right of first landing. Um, this is a tradition that was continued on for, for a lot. Like if emperor or somebody uh, important was coming on behalf of the emperor, they would come through Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city at the time and uh, trade, all of those kinds of things. And um, at, at the time... Um, there, was a huge, uh, there was a huge temple that was dedicated to all the gods that were official gods for the Roman Empire. And then on the top of that temple, the emperor Domitian at the time had erected about a 30-foot statue of himself. And, and this, is, this is how we know some of that, because that is part of his statue. Now, we look at that now, it doesn't it look kind of sad? Like, this, this guy, you know, was a part of the imperial cult where you're supposed to worship the emperor as, as a god. And I'm sure at the time it was super, super impressive. Now he, he doesn't have a nose uh, or a thumb, it looks like, or the rest of his body. Um, and, and maybe uh, for, uh, for, for us, we, we think about that. We think, oh, it'd be so easy, you know, just to, to, to reject that out of hand because it seems so distant from the way that we experience life. Like, we don't, we don't see temples erected. We don't see idols, you know, that people um, set, set up. We don't have an imperial cult, for example, um, in our, you know, in our country. Um, for You know, it's not like people go to huge rallies um, and get super excited about political speeches. And it's not like people have, you know, their favorite uh, political, you know, person in power that they want to control everything. And um, it's not like people get... Uh, super, you know, intense about really specific ideas about, you know, how a country should be run or what should be important to us. And, and so these are not relatable things to us at, at all in our context, right? Okay, now that we've cleared that up. Um, 
But the church at Ephesus, this, this is the type of place that they were living in. All right? This was the like, seat of power for, for Rome, for Asia Minor, that everything flowed through here. And they've, they've been faithful. They have right belief. We would call the church word for this would be orthodoxy. And yet Jesus says, but you've forgotten your first love. And how could that, how could that possibly be the case? When you persevered, you've been in this, this situation, and you've stayed faithful, you've had the right beliefs, how can, how can this happen? Um, there's this specific reference to they're not growing weary and rejecting false teaching and holding on to the truth. You know, Jesus says, I, you know, it's good that you reject the Nicolaitans. That, that's great. The Nicolaitans were a specific um, sect of people who uh, were just false teachers in Christianity. And their teaching was that this is a spiritual thing. Whatever you do with your body, like f- the physical stuff, it's, it's fine. Like you, you can participate in, in whatever you need to do. Like whatever it takes for you to shop and buy in, in the Agora, in the marketplace, whatever, whatever you need to do to convince the Roman Empire that, that, you're, uh, that you're a good citizen, like you, you participate on those things. Whatever is required in you know, temple worship for you to be a part of the things that you want to be a part of, like that's, that's fine. You can participate on, in these things because it's really just about what you believe. Um, but that's, that's not the case. And, and this is kind of the, the way in which the culture had kind of impacted the, the church. So the, the church at Ephesus, they were really good at rejecting what they knew what was wrong. And, and they were really good at pointing that out in other people and saying, oh, here are the people that we need to make sure we, we stay away from. Here are the people that we need to make sure that we are not, not, alike, not alike. But some of the things that they missed are... are I mean, they're hand in glove, but they're, but they're even more important. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you, forsaking the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Because while they had right belief, their orthodoxy was really good. What they were mi- missing was right practice. The churchy word for that would be orthopraxy. And one of the things, regardless of whatever else is happening in life, however we're being impacted by a world that's broken or an empire that's oppressive, um, or the craziness that happens in the world on a global scale, what we have to remember is our first love, and that ultimately what God wants the most with us is for us to be with him. Like that, that's the thing. And, and the Ephesians had been, so the, the church in Ephesus, um, they, they were really good at having right belief, but they were struggling with right practice. This is relationship advice that Jesus is giving to the church. Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus to take stock of what things had been like when their faith was, when their faith was new, when it was full of passion. Uh, whatever there was the good to say about their orthodoxy, their right practice was severely lacking, and this was undermining their relationship with Jesus. You know how this is. In any relationship that you have, how it begins, I mean, we could think about this in terms of husband and wife. We can think of this in terms of best friend. We can think of this in terms of a brand new job. You know, however we think about those things, when we kind of get just used to everything, and you know how that works, you know, works, familiarity breeds contempt is one thing, but the, and, you know, sometimes we just get really presumptive in our relationships. You know, I, when I married my wife, I, I, Renee, I told her I loved her, and if I change my mind, I will let her know. Right. Like, we know, we know that's not okay, but sometimes we just get caught up in those kinds of rhythms because life starts living us versus, versus us being intentional about living, living life. 
Um, and when we become more presumptive in our relationship, that, yeah, sure, everything's fine. Of course we love each other, those kinds of things. Sometimes we miss out on the goodness we're meant to experience because we get out of the habit of what built the relationship in the first place. What does it look like to, to like, not remember your first love? Like, some of us are married, and, and we need to date our spouse, right? We need to remember what the thing was that we did at first, unless it was something we shouldn't have been doing, you know, <laughs> at first. Uh, but, you know, we need to remember what it looks like to, to have a healthy, engaged relationship with, with, that first, with that first love. You know, forsaking first love, I mean, when John is talking to the church at Ephesus, this is not, not like a new thing. When Jesus is writing this, this is not a new thing. This is the pattern of the Israelites throughout the whole, whole Old Testament. It's forsaking and forgetting their first love. I mean, we, we talked about this in our, in our small group, actually, this, this past Tuesday. Um, we talked about how one of, we were talking about something else, really, but um, one of the classic examples of this in the Old Testament is the minor prophet of Hosea. And I don't know if you remember what Hosea is all about, but Hosea had to marry Gomer, um, and Gomer was a, um, a, a lady of the night. And, and, and God's message through the prophet of Hosea in, in doing this was saying, hey, when you are not faithful, when you forsake and forget your f- first love, this is what this is like. And this is some of the problems that come as a result of that. And this is what it represents. And this is, it, you know, like these are practical, real things that impact our life. It's not just, this is not just spiritual. This is physical. This is real. This is tangible. And this is the message from Jesus to Ephesus. And from here, as we look at this problem, we can see how all the other problems kind of cascade, kind of, kind of come as a result of this one. So as you read through this, these, uh, these statements, these messages to these seven churches, you can see how, man, you, f- you forget or for- you forsake your first love, what it's really all about, this relationship with God. God desires to be with us and for us to be with him. Like, this is how these other problems start to creep in, and this is how, um, this is how we start to be more influenced by the culture around us versus us being the influence of Christ that he calls us to be. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, are we being influenced more by the world or by our relationship with Jesus? Because, um, because the way that the world thinks and operates will lead us away from that relationship, not to it. As we continue to read chapters 2 and 3, um, it sounds like Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're, they're in pretty good shape. Like, I want to be a Smyrna or Philadelphia church. They're living in the tension relatively well. The others have a little bit more work to do. Uh, one has a lot more work to do, it seems like, because they have bought into participating in the life of the empire. Uh, in Pergamum and Thyatira, we find two common problems that still face the church today. In Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 16, and this is the second biggest chunk that we'll read uh, through, uh, through with the churches. So I really encourage you to read through these, these passages on your, on your own. Uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Remember that imagery of Jesus in chapter 1 referring to the word of God. Uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You guys ever lived in a city like that before? I don't know. I, I shouldn't say a city right now, should I? Okay, I, I won't. Uh, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So we're talking about people killed because they remained faithful to Jesus. Okay, this is the context in which they live. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. 
There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's some other verses attached there, too, that are important to read. Um, in Pergamum, Pergamum, imagine like being on a mountaintop and um, just countless temples devoted to countless gods. So one of the most significant temples, like all the way back to Augustus Caesar, was, was erected here. Um, There's a massive temple to Zeus uh, that was here. Dionysus was, uh, was worshipped here as well. Um, There's a huge um, uh, altar for Zeus that was included in this. It's actually... Uh, been reconstructed in a museum in Berlin, like what, what it looked like and that kind of thing. Um, and the, and the, the centerpiece for those things was, was like the throne for that God. And so when Jesus is talking about, you know, the place where the seat of Satan is, uh, he's referring to all of the distractions of idol worship and, uh, and, and the worship of the gods that people engaged in in this, in this place. Um, where they have members of the church who are, who are essentially living like citizens of the empire. Uh, John uh, makes this Old Testament reference to Numbers chapter 22, verses, uh, Numbers 22 through 25, where he's talking about Balaam, like the sin of Balaam and how, how that impacts things. And the issue is false teaching and sexual immorality. Now, we don't have to deal with those things in our day and age. Um, so, I don't, I don't know why we're laughing. What? Uh, it's almost like I'm being sarcastic, you know, so it, you know, people, you know, we, the church is very unified, right, in, in our country. We all believe the same thing, and we, we can, uh, we, we can, we can prove that outright because there aren't multiple denominations and all kinds of different emphasis, emphases, you know, in, in how we follow Jesus, um, and, and all, everybody agrees about the impact that culture has on the church and what we should believe and how closely we should look like the culture. Um, and sexual immorality, like, that's not a thing for our culture at all. We're not hypersexualized um, in every single thing that we do and any kind of content that you could possibly uh, consume. So certainly we don't have to worry about those kinds, kinds of things. Um, this is exactly the type of environment the church had to, had, to, had to live and operate in. And people were caught up in those things engaged in that. I mean, uh, in the worship to Dionysus, like, the, the big thing was ecstasy, fertility, like, those kinds of things. He was kind of the wine god, and they had this huge festival where um, they would eat raw meat and drink as much wine as they could until they got sick, and uh, you also, uh, everybody in the city engaged with one another in, you know, close proximity. And, and, like, that, that's the, these are the things that, that the church is struggling with. Well, you know, well, how, how do we, you know, how do we, how are we apart in the world, not of, you know, how do we engage in these things? And they, they, weren't, they weren't, like, getting it right all the time. And we think, oh, that's so distant. But, and we think about maybe some of the things that we engage in, some of the content that we consume, some of the things that are just kind of, we've just kind of accepted as, as normal behavior, um, some of, the, some of the beliefs that we hold on to that we, we know maybe are disconnected from the teaching of Jesus, but we just don't see that it's that big of a deal. Um, and these are the things that Jesus is saying, no, that, these, are, these are super important. Wrong belief leads to wrong practice, and eventually it leads to spiritual death. 
And again, here, here's this other progress, uh, progression. You for, forsaking your first love, like you've forgotten. It's lead, leading to you being engaged in things that you shouldn't be. And eventually, it's going to lead to spiritual death. This is the problem in Sardis in chapter 3. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the time I will come, at what time I will come to you. Sardis had a couple really embarrassing moments historically. Uh, they thought that they were really well fortified, um, and so they didn't really need to spend a whole lot of time on defense. So there were a couple times they were put under siege, and they were like, ah, we'll have a couple people at the wall, but they can't get in here. Like, it's, it's not really a problem. And um, I think it's like 400 years removed or so, like they made the same exact mistake. Um, so one just really observant uh, person from an, uh, an occupying or uh, sieging army uh, to come to overthrow them noticed that uh, a guy who dropped his helmet, um, like somehow somebody came, like showed up in another place on the mountain, was able to pick it up and like go, go back up or some, something like that. And they're like, huh, so there must be a secret entrance. Well, sure enough, there was. The army found it. They get in there in the middle of the night because that's what you do. And uh, nobody was like nobody was defending because they thought, oh, we're good. Like, we've got everything we need here. We're all set. Nobody can, nobody can break in and do this. Uh, nobody can overthrow us. And this happened a couple, different thing, a couple different times in the history of the city. We can get so comfortable in, in what the world has to offer, in wealth and position and power, and completely miss that life isn't about these things. And the way of Jesus calls us to, sh- to share joy in the things that actually matter. And, and I, I like... I like uh, being excited about things, but I recognize that sometimes um, I'm really excited about things that in the long run don't have a whole lot of significance eternally. Like, I really like that the Spurs got the number one draft pick um, and preseason is, is happening and uh, Wimby's looking real good, man. Seven foot four and just eating people up, making them look like kids out on the playground. And I, I, like, I'm excited about, the Spurs are going to win a championship. Like that, it's gonna have. I have confidence in my ignorance um, that the Spurs will win a championship because of this this amazing uh, amazing person. Um, and yet, man, all of that can be undercut in a moment. And and is that gonna bring lasting joy? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> for a while. Um, but man, it's been a long time since those other five championships, and I'm I'm not as excited about those anymore as maybe I was then. And yet God calls us to something that, um, that is much more worth celebrating and a, a sustainable uh, joy that he promises for us to be able to experience, even starting this, um, this side of heaven. When we are not alive spiritually, we place our faith in what is temporary. Um, and this is the final, this is the final uh, issue, the final problem that is addressed in the churches with our final church in Laodicea. Again, we did not touch all seven churches. Um, but here's what Revelation 3.15 says. And this is probably maybe the most popular one to talk about of the seven churches. So maybe you've heard those this is before. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Um, I like hot coffee, and I like iced coffee, and I like good coffee, but when, uh, when it's in between, like when it's the hot coffee that has turned into cold coffee, like I immediately spit it back in my cup. Is that gross? Sorry. I immediately spit it back in my cup and go warm it up and then, and then finish it as, as hot coffee. It's okay. It's not dirty or anything. It's like it's going back in the same, in the same place. 
So we get that imagery, like that, that hot cup that's supposed to be hot, that's now, now it's not. It's like, even if we like that same drink cold, it just it doesn't taste right. It's not right. You say, in verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. You know, some of those examples that, that Jesus is giving there are, are tied into um, some of the uh, things that are important to that city. Laodicea, for example, was not uh, positioned well for water, um, and they had an aqueduct system that, that brought them water. Then there's another city nearby that they were known for their hot springs, um, and so people would go as very restorative, like that's where you would go. Um, kind of like Bath, if you've been to Bath in the UK, which is really your natural hot springs there, a uh, really cool place to visit. Um, and so you would go, and, and very valuable here. And here's this other city near Laodicea. They have, they have plenty of good drinking water. And so you've got this aqueduct, aqueduct system that's bringing stuff to you know, Laodicea, but they don't have water of their own. Like they're, they're kind of taking, taking water where they can get it, and it's really just not that great. So you start to kind of get some of that, that imagery. But one of the things that... Um, one of, the, one of the things the Laodiceans did have is wealth. Like, they, they were set. They were good. In fact, um, sometimes natural disasters would happen. The city would need to be rebuilt, and uh, Rome offers this to Laodicea, and they're like, no, we're good. We're going to rebuild on Rome. we got plenty of money. Like, we can even, you know, print our own or punch our own coins. You know, they're making their own gold, gold coins and th- that kind of thing, and we're, we're totally good. And Jesus says, you can't take any of this with you. And it certainly doesn't help you if, if the choice that you're confronted with in life is whether or not to follow Jesus or the empire. And so Jesus says to them, be something. Like, you're, you're, right now, you're just choosing nothing. Like, this is not Jesus saying, I'd rather you be good or bad. Like, that, that's, that's not, it's, you know, which one's bad, which one's, well, hot must be bad because hell, you know, that kind of, no, it's, it's, it's not about that. It's that Jesus says, you're, you're just not, you're, you're not participating in real life. You're, you're putting all of your stock and all of your hope in the things that uh, thieves break and steal, moth and ru- rust you know, destroys. Those are the things that's building up your confidence in life. And so, all of those things are going to go away. And so you need to get, get in the game. You know, pick something to be a part of, participate in real life. Um, have confidence that God is promising to do something in your life that's real and that matters and that has a ripple effect through eternity. Because what this boils down to, especially for, for uh, Christians in this day and age, is that citizens of the empire had both a civil and religious duty that superseded their own cultural background and traditions. There are some exceptions that were given to some people groups. But Christianity was essentially considered a pagan cult, and because of their allegiance, um, their citizenship, citizenship was not focused on the kingdoms of this world or the Roman Empire. It was, it was on the kingdom of God. And the way it was determined if whether or not a Christian was guilty of, you know, treason or not being a part of the Roman Empire was that they were forced to make a choice about their allegiance. And it's very simple. Brought into a room. Here's, a, uh, here's an idol. Here's something that represents Rome. You know, whatever the thing is. And you make the choice as to whether or not to worship that thing in that moment. That was it. Like, that was the thing. It's, it's either Jesus or the empire. And that's all that it boils down to. And so when we read through each of these seven churches and each of the issues that they had and the issues that they faced, we find that um, 
the challenges are not much different from the choice that we have today. It's, it's either our relationship with Christ or, or, it's, or it's everything else. Or it's, it's forgetting our first love or who even created love in the first place and what our lives are meant to be about and what we're called to experience, not just here but there as well. Not just this side of heaven, uh, not just that side of heaven, but this side of heaven as well. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 uh, this is to Laodicea, but I think we can appreciate how there's a general principle that we're all invited to consider. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Um, this is not about Jesus knocking at the door of our hearts asking to come in. This is not about individuals. Remember, the context is, and I get we can draw some principles maybe, Remember, the context here is that Jesus is sending a message to the church. And so the image that we're called to here is, is not like, oh, I need to think about this individual thing, but um, that we're not just called to an individual relationship with Jesus. We're called to a communal one. And, and we're meant to go through and do this. The only way for us to uh, live out our citizenship in the kingdom of, of God is to, is to do this together in community because the choices that we're having to make and the life that we're having to live is so different from the culture around us and should be so shockingly, conspicuously separate from the rest of the world um, that we need each other to be able to do this. And Jesus is saying to the church, he's, he's, he's like, he's right there. It, not, not actually, like you don't, you don't have, to, have to look. Um, I mean, he is gathered with us because there are two or three you know, or more gathered in his name. But it's like he's knocking on the door and he's saying, hey, guys, I want to, like, let, let me in. Like, re- remember what this is really all about. Like, don't forget your first love and what you were created for. There's a promise that is given to every single one of these churches that we haven't focused on yet, but this is the most important thing right here at the end. Revelation chapter 2, and this is, the, this is the message to the church in Ephesus, but it's given to all seven of these churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the promise given. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. For every single one of this, these churches, the word victory or conqueror is used. There, there's a particular um, way in which God calls us to experience his relationship in this world. Regardless of whatever situation or circumstance or city or place or issue that we find ourselves up against, um, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to live a life of victory, of, of conquering. Even when the empire is overwhelming, even when we are stuck with having to make the choice between Jesus and empire, um, God says, hey, if, if, you, if you listen to what I have to say, like, this is the way to victory. This is the path to being more than a conqueror, like Paul points out in Romans chapter, chapter 8. John isn't writing this for some unforeseen future. He's writing for new and victorious life right now in living out the way of Jesus. That when we remember from what and to what we have been saved, when we reject the lies our culture assumes we should believe, and we begin living for something greater than what this world has to offer, and when we do these things, we experience a freedom far greater than we have ever known in our lives. And so the question for us is, which church are we living like? What is Jesus, Jesus saying to us? What is Jesus saying to our church? And it's also, um, like, how are we participating in that as individuals? Because this, this, is not, this is not just my church. 
This is not just, you know, your church. This is, this is our church, and we are the bride of Christ. And what would it take for us to live with confidence knowing that the victory is already won? And we don't have to lower our standards for what God is offering in a life with him just because we can't find it elsewhere in this world, because God is offering that up to us. And so I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to read these chapters this week. Read chapters 2 and 3, and where do you find yourself in the text? What, what church would you place yourself in? And what is the letter Jesus is writing to you, to, to your heart, where he's calling you back or calling you to be encouraged by and to be faithful in and confident in our first love. This is the invitation that, that we give, this, this message that continues to be passed on and continues to be relevant to the church, uh, even from, from all the way back to the early church and the, what they were facing and recognizing that the same principles, the same truths still exist for us today. And Jesus uh, invites us into a wholly different life than the way, one the world offers. Let's pray together. God, there are plenty of times where um, our confidence can be undermined. It doesn't seem like things are very victorious when things aren't going the way that we would like, uh, when tragedy falls, when uh, situations in the world don't seem to match up with the way that things ought to be. And God, we just give you glory and honor and praise that you uh, promise and fulfill your promise to... um, to, to create a, a, better, a better way, and that we only find that through Jesus. So, God, we just ask, ask for the confidence to be faithful in who you call us to be and how you uh, show us to live in a world uh, where not everybody knows you and that is lived in such a way that uh, doesn't, doesn't reflect the life that we were created for. And so, God, help us to see those things. Guide us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to recognize uh, who you've called us to be, um, the, the choices that we are called to make, uh, to be faithful in our confidence in you. God, thank you for the victory that has already been won through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.